Due to the graphic nature of these killers' crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, sexual assault, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The summer of 1978 hit the West Coast hard. Temperatures were scorching, even as far north as the California men's colony in San Luis Obispo. To deal with the heat, inmates tried to distract themselves any way they could. For 38-year-old Lawrence Bitteker and his new pal, 30-year-old Roy Norris, that meant long conversations deep into the night. Neither of the men had many other friends, so they spent nearly all of their free time together. As the summer wore on, they got to know each other well. In hushed tones, they discovered that though they had differing backgrounds and outlooks on life, they shared similar sadistic sexual fantasies. From the corner of a table in the mess hall and a quiet cubby in the library, a dark alliance was born. Their friendship was built on a foundation of elaborate and twisted discussions about the women they planned to hurt after they were released. Bitteker and Norris vowed that when they got out of prison the next year, they would meet up again. And together, the two of them would fill a graveyard. I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a ParCast original. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're exploring the stomach-churning murders committed by Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, otherwise known as the Toolbox Killers. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Serial Killers for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris murdered five young girls in 1979. This week, we'll discuss their early criminal careers, their chance meeting in prison, and the gruesome partnership that formed behind bars. Next week, we'll discuss their horrific crimes and how they came to be known as the Toolbox Killers. We've got that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. 
I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about, and when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was, and I was able to see it in a different light, and it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Lawrence Bittaker always struggled to fit in. Born in 1940, he never knew his biological parents. His adoptive father, George, moved the family around often for his work in the aircraft industry. During his formative years, the Bittakers lived in Pennsylvania, Florida, Ohio, and California. All the traveling made it difficult for Bittaker to make friends. Knowing he was adopted made him feel like that much more of an outsider, even in his own family. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to psychologist Dr. Alan Schwartz, children who are adopted can face unique challenges during their adolescent development. Some adopted children struggle with complicated feelings of grief. Dr. Schwartz writes, It is very common for those who were adopted to feel rejected and abandoned by their birth parents. Feelings of loss and rejection are often accompanied by a damaged sense of self-esteem. These feelings and thoughts are unrelated to the amount of love and support received from the adoptive parents and family. Bittaker likely struggled with his identity from an early age, and it may have been exacerbated by his adoptive family's frequent moves. He may have felt there was nowhere to turn. He had few connections with kids his own age and no outlet to discuss his feelings. As a teenager, perhaps because he felt so alone, Bittaker lashed out at authority. His teachers considered him highly intelligent, and at one point his IQ was measured at 138, far above average. But even so, he hated school and refused to take direction. In 1957, when he was 17, he dropped out. Bittaker didn't have much of a plan B. He wasn't interested in getting a steady job and instead turned to petty crimes to earn money. He loved the thrill of taking from others and felt no remorse when stealing, even when it put those around him in danger. In fact, he saw his lawbreaking as an edgy rebellion. Throughout his life, Bittaker's heroes weren't artists or revolutionaries. They were notorious killers. 
Around 1957, Bitteker was arrested after stealing a car and fleeing the scene of a hit-and-run accident. When police finally caught up to him, Bitteker attempted to run, earning him a charge for evading arrest as well. Because it was his first offense, Bitteker was sentenced to just two years in the California Youth Authority facility. Not much is known about his time in jail, but it didn't seem to make him rethink his actions. As soon as he was released in 1959, the 19-year-old left California, traveling east to Oklahoma. There, he stole another car and was arrested only days later in Louisiana. This time, Bitteker was sent to a federal prison in Oklahoma for a year. Once again, he immediately went back to committing petty crimes upon his release in 1960. For several weeks, he survived by stealing cars and shoplifting. During all that time, Bitteker made no notable attempts to go straight. He also, apparently, didn't put much thought into how to avoid arrest. Only months later, in December of 1960, he was caught again. This time, he was convicted of robbery and sentenced to indefinite imprisonment, up to 15 years. After perusing his record, authorities were baffled by Bitteker's repeated offenses and apparent lack of remorse. They decided to send him in for psychological evaluation. Doctors determined that Bitteker was intelligent, manipulative, and possibly psychotic. He was smart enough to understand the consequences of his actions, but jail time didn't serve as an effective deterrent. He was also described as hiding a great deal of hostility towards others and as being basically paranoid. In later years, forensic psychiatrist Dr. Ronald Markman expressed some skepticism about these labels on Bitteker. While it was true that Bitteker blamed society at large for his troubles and was incapable of empathy, there was some disagreement about whether or not he was actually psychotic. Either way, prison officials didn't seem to act on the diagnosis. In 1962, Bitteker was evaluated again. Doctors again determined he was borderline psychotic and couldn't control his impulses. Yet for all the clear warnings, Bitteker didn't receive sustained psychiatric treatment. In fact, he was let out of jail early in 1963 at the age of 23. Out of the 15-year maximum, he served only two. Most likely, the exact qualities which concern psychologists and their evaluations, Bitteker's intelligence and penchant for manipulation, are what facilitated his early release. He was repeatedly able to endear himself to parole boards by pretending to be rehabilitated. But predictably, Bitteker never made good use of his lucky breaks. Less than two months after he was released, he was picked up for violating the terms of his parole. He was imprisoned for a couple of years before he was once again examined. Again, officials came to worrying conclusions, ruling that Bitteker was indeed psychotic. They prescribed him some medication, but it did little to change his behavior. Bitteker always had an excuse for committing his crimes. He felt that the world misunderstood and oppressed him forcing him to break its rules in order to make himself heard. Though it seems no one believed Bitteker was mentally stable, he was paroled yet again in 1967. Only a month later, the 27-year-old was arrested for the fifth time for petty theft and another hit and run. 
Bitteker was sentenced to five years in prison, but only served three. In 1970, at the age of 29, he was released once more. By that point, he'd spent the majority of his adult life in jail, and he was full of resentment for the system that incarcerated him. More than that, he was no longer truly afraid of prison. He'd survived inside for years and practically thought of it as home. So once released, he immediately returned to stealing. It was the only life he knew. A year later, in 1971, Bitteker was arrested again for burglary. It was all the same to Bitteker, who once again returned to prison. But no matter how many bridges he burned, he was always able to get another opportunity. He was paroled sometime in the next couple of years. But this time, he felt differently about his release. Now in his early 30s, Bitteker suddenly felt adrift. He didn't know what he wanted to do, only that he still didn't want to get a regular job. He returned to stealing, but this time was determined not to get caught. In 1974, when he was 34 years old, Bitteker committed his most violent crime yet. According to him, he had taken tranquilizers and drunk quite a bit of alcohol when he walked into a supermarket looking for food. He crept to the freezer area, swiped a piece of meat, and hurriedly stuffed it down his pants. Then, in a drunken haze, Bitteker staggered his way to the exit. He made it to the door when a store clerk spotted him and the misshapen bulge in his pants. When the clerk yelled for Bitteker to stop, he sprinted through the doors into the parking lot. The employee easily caught up to him and got in his way. In a panic, Bitteker pulled a knife from his pocket and stabbed the clerk. He was arrested and charged with assault with a deadly weapon. When he sat down with a psychologist to explain the incident, he claimed that he couldn't remember what happened, blaming the drugs and alcohol. In the opinion of this psychologist, Dr. Ronald Markman, Bitteker did not come off as psychotic. Instead, Dr. Markman diagnosed Bitteker with antisocial personality disorder. He wrote, Lawrence Bitteker was incapable of learning to play by the rules. He would never learn from experience and would just keep butting his head against the barriers of acceptable behavior. On his recommendation, Bitteker was transferred to a mental hospital. Doctors there concurred with Markman's evaluation. They felt that, if released, Bitteker was almost certain to commit further crimes. Some even worried that Bitteker's anger at the world and his crimes would grow more intense if he was reintroduced into society. They were right about Bitteker's growing fury. For years, he had carried out a senseless one-man crusade against the system. As he repeatedly suffered legal consequences of his actions, he felt more persecuted and victimized. He believed himself to be blameless, one of the few who refused to bend their knee to the authorities. His rage also caused him to become isolated. He rarely spoke to others for any length of time. When he did talk, it was mostly to toy with people or manipulate them. That changed in 1978, when 38-year-old Bitteker met Roy Norris. Norris was a fellow inmate who became Bitteker's first true friend. But while some people may have hoped that their relationship would curb Bitteker's antisocial behavior, their hopes would soon be dashed. Instead, in Norris, Bitteker found an ally who only confirmed his most destructive, misanthropic ideas.
Up next, Lawrence Bittaker gets to know his future partner in crime. This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. After more than a decade of social isolation spent in and out of prison, 38-year-old Lawrence Bittaker made a friend in 1978. His new companion was 30-year-old Roy Norris, fellow inmate at the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo. The two men had a lot in common. Like Bittaker, Roy Norris also endured a difficult childhood. His parents married young after his mother became pregnant with him in 1948. Both she and Norris's father made it clear they resented their son for forcing them to get married. Neither of them particularly liked each other, but felt duty-bound to remain together to raise Norris. Ironically, though they claimed to stay together for the sake of their child, neither one of them took very good care of him. They left Norris in the care of foster parents for sporadic periods and would then take him back home months or years later. Norris was forced to endure the emotional whiplash of continually being pulled close to his parents only for them to abandon him again at a moment's notice. At some point, Norris was reportedly sexually abused by one of his foster families. It's not known exactly what occurred, but Norris was haunted by the experience for the rest of his life. Possibly due to this early, violent sexual experience, Norris became preoccupied with sadistic fantasies as a teenager. When he was 16 years old in 1964, he was kicked out of a female relative's house for making sexually suggestive remarks. Norris's father threatened to beat him after hearing what happened. In a panic, Norris stole his father's car and escaped into the Colorado woods. Alone and distraught, he contemplated taking his own life. Using a syringe, he attempted to inject air straight into his arteries, but was unsuccessful. The police eventually found Norris in the woods and returned him to his parents. His mother and father greeted him with a tirade, calling him a burden and a disappointment. Norris endured the psychological abuse, but started searching for a way out of his broken home. The next year, at age 17, he dropped out of school, just like his future friend Bittaker. He joined the Navy in 1965. Norris spent most of his service in California, but was deployed to Vietnam for several months in 1969. When he returned stateside, something was different about him. His fellow soldiers noticed that he seemed unhinged and was more aggressive. 
Within weeks of returning to San Diego, the 21-year-old was arrested for attempting to rape a woman. While out on bail the following year, he tried to force his way into another woman's home. Luckily, police arrived before he could break in through the window. Military psychologists determined he had a severe schizoid personality, and Norris was discharged from the Navy. The loss of his job only catapulted Norris toward further acts of violence. Because now, there was no stabilizing force in his life. Other than his court dates, he had nowhere to be and nothing to do during the days. He stewed over his violent fantasies for days until he couldn't take it anymore. In May of 1970, he stalked a young woman near San Diego State University. While Norris followed the woman, he swiped a rock from the pavement and concealed it in his palm. Gripping it tightly in hand, he approached the woman from behind. Before she could turn around, Norris raised the rock above his head and smashed it into her skull. He hit the woman again and again until she collapsed. Norris then jumped on top of her and slammed her head against the pavement. Her blood spattered all over the sidewalk and onto Norris's hands before police were able to respond. The woman sustained severe head trauma, but luckily survived the brutal attack. Norris was charged with assault and taken to a mental hospital for sex offenders. He spent five years in the hospital and underwent psychiatric treatment. In 1975, doctors granted his release. They decided that he no longer posed a threat to others. They were wrong. Only three months later, 27-year-old Norris attempted to pick up a young woman walking by the side of the road. After she refused to ride on his motorcycle, Norris parked and began walking beside her. Terrified, the woman walked faster to get away. Norris kept up the pace and attempted to embrace her. She shoved him away, but he grabbed her by the scarf and pulled her back to him. He wrapped the scarf around her neck and whispered in her ear that he was going to rape her. The woman froze in fear. She was sure that if she fought back, Norris would hurt her maybe even kill her. Norris dragged her into some nearby woods and raped her. Afterward, the woman escaped. She called the police, but they were unable to track down Norris based on her description. But by a stroke of luck, a month later, she spotted Norris driving by on his motorcycle. She wrote down his license plate and passed it on to authorities. Norris was convicted of rape and placed in the California men's colony, along with Lawrence Bittaker. For a while, the two were only vaguely aware of each other. They didn't really run in the same circles. Norris primarily associated with motorcycle gangs and dealt drugs to inmates. Still, Bittaker was impressed by Norris's reputation and watched him from afar. Norris seemed like a smart man to him and someone who could be a useful ally. It was possibly for this reason that in 1978, 38-year-old Bittaker saved Norris's life. The exact circumstances aren't known, but Norris claimed that Bittaker came to his rescue twice in jail after he was attacked by fellow inmates. Norris felt like he owed Bittaker after that. The two started talking and became friends. They spent long hours chatting about their hopes and dreams. Most of the fantasies they discussed were violent, and the two men bonded over their mutual obsession with denigrating women. Norris in particular loved scaring women. He relished their expressions of horror as he attacked and tortured them. 
There was no shortage of sex offenders in the prison, but Norris and Bideker's penchant for sadistic fantasies made them slightly unusual. Contrary to what one may expect, not all sex offenders have particularly violent imaginations. In fact, a 1986 survey of 64 sex offenders determined that the majority of sex offenders had fantasies that were no different than the average person. However, there are a distinct proportion of criminals who do have deviant fantasies. A 1998 study concluded that approximately 25% of sex offenders experience violent fantasies. And there's evidence to suggest that these people are much more dangerous than the average sex offender. In 2002, psychologists Suzanne Curnow and Ron Langevin examined the profiles of 228 sex offenders. They wrote that deviant fantasizers may be more socially alienated and less emotionally stable than non-deviant fantasizers. These findings ring true in the cases of Bitteker and Norris. Neither were very socially engaged, and both had shown themselves unable to resist their darkest impulses. They found in each other a demented, kindred spirit. Their sick fantasies helped the two men while away their final hours in prison. One of their favorite topics of conversation was a sadistic plan to sexually assault and murder seven teenage girls. For no clear reason, the pair liked the idea of killing girls of different ages. They arbitrarily wanted to murder a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, and so on, up to the age of 19. They talked about their fantasy in detail, with varying degrees of seriousness. Neither of them were sure whether the other was really willing to go on a killing spree together, or if they were just blowing smoke. After all, alliances formed inside don't often last outside of prison. When Bitteker was released from jail in 1978, Norris thought for sure he'd never hear from his new pal ever again. Three months later, he was released in January of 1979. By that time, Bitteker was already working as a machinist, though he hadn't always bothered finding steady work when he wasn't in prison. This time, he was determined to blend in and stay out of prison because he had big plans. Meanwhile, Norris found work as an electronics technician and moved in with his mother at a trailer park in Los Angeles County. He was pleasantly surprised to get a letter from Bitteker asking to get together and go on a drive with him. Bitteker and Norris found they got along, even away from the strictures of the prison. Both were excited to continue their vulgar, violent conversations about women. They took to going on long weekend drives down the Pacific Coast Highway, parking and drinking on the many beaches. They spent most of their time watching women in bikinis sunbathing on the beaches from a discreet distance. Sometimes they'd take creepy pictures of the women or make lewd jokes at their expense. With each conversation, their sick desires became harder to resist. They emboldened each other. Bitteker and Norris could say any disgusting things that came into their mind, certain that the other would encourage them. It was a melding of two depraved minds, and the longer they spoke, the more seriously they considered acting on their fantasies. Before long, the two decided that they would carry out their plan to rape a woman together. 38-year-old Bitteker took the lead on the scheme, finding a cargo van they could use to abduct their victim as well as working out the other details. 
For Bideker, planning was key. Unlike Norris, he'd never sexually assaulted anyone and was terrified of getting caught. He made Norris agree that if they did attack a woman, they would kill her afterward. There could be no witnesses. They came up with detailed plans for cornering young women and forcing them into the van, but eventually decided that they wouldn't need to drag the woman in at all. There were plenty of hitchhikers near the beaches that they could coax into the vehicle. The men were so wary of being caught that they decided to do a number of dry runs to practice luring unsuspecting women into the van. For weeks, they picked up hitchhikers by offering them whatever they needed, whether it be drugs, conversation, or just a ride. Beginning in February of 1979, Bittaker and Norris gave around 20 rides to strangers, never assaulting their passengers. Over time, they worked to perfect their non-threatening approach. They learned to appear good-natured and passive, and not to press the women too aggressively. The men introduced themselves with fake names, gave phony backstories, and worked on their small talk. They aimed to lure their victims into a false sense of security as much as possible. They also used the rides to scope out isolated spots where they might bring their future victims. They kept their eyes peeled for abandoned campsites and old trails that led into the woods. In April of 1979, 38-year-old Bittaker found an out-of-the-way fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains. It was blocked by a locked gate, but Bittaker used a crowbar to snap the padlock off and replace it with a lock of his own. Now they owned the road. Once they had a location picked out, Bittaker and Norris secured their transport. They added a plywood bed, a toolbox, and cooler full of cold beers to the back of the van. By late June of 1979, all of their preparations were complete. They were finally ready to go hunting. When we return, Norris and Bideker claim their first victim. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Now, back to the story. On June 24, 1979, 38-year-old Lawrence Bittaker and 31-year-old Roy Norris climbed into their gray cargo van for a trip down the California coast. After months of twisted practice, this was the day they would finally try to abduct a young girl. Norris waved goodbye to his mother and jumped in the passenger seat of the van. Bittaker cracked open a beer and sipped while he drove to the beach. 
They spent hours cruising, lounging in the sand, and searching for their first victim. After more than a year of fantasizing, they wanted their first attack to be perfect. They were in no rush to seize just any young girl they caught walking on the side of the road. Finally, after around six hours of hunting, the men spotted a blonde teenager down the sidewalk near Redondo Beach. The girl was 16-year-old Cindy Schaefer. She had just come from church and was walking toward her grandmother's house. Bittaker and Norris watched as she stooped to play with a stray cat. She looked cheerful and innocent, clad in a clean white shirt and jeans. The men wanted to hurt her. Bittaker slowed the van to follow Cindy down a side street. They saw her pass a group of men loitering on a corner. She refused the beer the men offered her and kept going. Just by watching her, Norris and Bittaker could tell that Cindy wasn't the type to take a ride from a stranger. They decided then and there that they wouldn't even bother trying to offer her a ride. If they wanted her to get in the van, they were going to have to force her. Their careful planning and hours of practice went out the window. Bittaker pulled ahead of Cindy and stopped in the driveway of a small home about a block away from her. There was no one else on the street. The red sun had started sinking and it shone like a malevolent spotlight on the van. As Cindy approached, Bittaker offered her something, possibly some drugs. When she refused, he signaled to Norris. All of a sudden, Norris threw open the sliding door, jumped out, and grabbed Cindy by the waist. She screamed, but he covered her mouth before she could alert the neighbors. She writhed against his grip, kicking off one of her shoes in the struggle, but the teenager was no match for the grown man. He threw her in the back of the van, and Bittaker sped away. To drown out Cindy's screams, Bittaker turned the radio on full blast and throttled down the residential street. Meanwhile, Norris taped the girl's mouth shut and tied her hands and feet. By the time they reached the highway, Cindy stopped screaming. She didn't try to ask questions or cry. She seemed disengaged from reality. They drove the van to the secluded fire road Bittaker had padlocked weeks earlier. Then they leaned back in the plywood bed in the back of the van and had what Bittaker and Norris called a party. While Cindy looked on in detached despair, Bittaker and Norris lit a joint and passed it around. As they smoked, they asked Cindy questions about her grandmother and her boyfriend. This may have been an attempt by Bittaker and Norris to feed their sexual fantasies. According to a paper by psychologist Dr. Martin Simons, criminals who are categorized as compulsive rapists want to fool themselves into believing that the victim is complicit in the violence. He wrote, Compulsive rapists talk to the victim and want her to respond. They try to create the illusion of a relationship. Their goal seems to be for the victim to give herself to them. While the primary purpose appears sexual, their behavior is based on deep-seated hostility to women. Cindy's meek response to their questions may have heightened this illusion for Bittaker and Norris. The fact that she didn't violently struggle against them fed into their fantasy. Bittaker later wrote that she must not have struggled because she knew it would have been futile. But Bittaker was projecting. In reality, Cindy's reaction was common for victims of rape. 
In the same paper, Dr. Simons wrote, when a victim experiences fright bordering on panic, there's a heightened distortion of perceptive thinking and judgment. Most learned behavior seems to evaporate and the victim responds with the adaptive and innate patterns of early childhood. This can cause victims to react to the threat by detaching themselves from reality, appearing to be compliant in a desperate attempt to stay alive. After a while, Bittaker and Norris tired of their charade and stopped talking to Cindy. They started groping her. And then Norris asked Bittaker to take a walk alone in the woods. Bittaker left the two of them alone for an hour while Norris raped the 16-year-old girl. Afterwards, Norris left Bittaker alone while he did the same. Then came an argument. For months, the plan was to kill their victim, but one of them apparently got cold feet that night. Bittaker claimed he changed his mind about murdering Cindy, while Norris claimed that he was the one with second thoughts. In the end, it didn't matter. Norris dragged Cindy out of the van and tried to strangle her, but gave up before the job was done. The look of horror in the girl's eyes made him sick. While he retched, Bittaker tried to finish what he started. But he too released his grip before Cindy was fully dead. As the girl's body twitched unnaturally, the men decided they'd have to use something other than their hands. After rooting around in the toolbox, Bittaker and Norris settled on using a wire coat hanger to strangle Cindy. They used pliers to wrap the hanger around the girl's throat and twist it as hard as they could. The pressure was so great that the hanger broke her skin, leaving a horrible red ring around her throat after they let go. The men wrapped Cindy's body in a shower curtain, tossed it back in the van, and trawled down the fire road, looking for a spot to dump the corpse. By that time, it was pitch dark, and Bittaker walked alongside the van with a flashlight to find a suitable spot while Norris drove. Eventually, they found a shallow canyon near the road and tossed Cindy's body over the side. Bittaker was confident that the local wildlife would get rid of the girl's remains long before police ever found her. Afterward, Bittaker and Norris drove back down the coast, celebrating their success. They'd done it. They were both killers. And they couldn't be happier. Thanks again for tuning into Serial Killers. We'll continue our deep dive into the toolbox killers in our next episode. In part two, we'll discuss the height of Bittaker and Norris's killing spree. For more information on Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Alone with the Devil, Famous Cases of a Courtroom Psychiatrist by Ronald Markman, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Serial Killers for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Serial Killers on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. 
Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Terrell Wells, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 